Matthew chapter 24. We saw several important things this morning as we uh, set the, the picture to be able to walk, work through it, Lord willing, uh, some possible meetings we may have in the future as the Lord will lead. Um, a couple of things I would like to go back to. Uh, the first is in the matter of interpretation. You remember we stated this morning how perhaps too much emphasis or priority was given to allegorical passages in the Bible. And I'm afraid a lot of uh, eschatological writings and timetables, charts have been written based on allegorical, apocalyptic, symbological literature. But what we saw this morning, I think, was important because we consider how there is a, a measure of obscurity, intended obscurity in these books, that may not make them the best uh, immediate reference when it comes to having some clarity when it comes to what will happen in the future, especially when we consider the end times, the end of the world, the return of our Lord. Um, as a general rule, I think it's wiser to give priority to didactic, theological, historical books of the Bible, uh, especially the apostolic writings, and of course what the Lord Himself teaches in the Gospels, passages like Matthew 24. There are passages in the Old Testament that are of immediate understanding because they do not use symbolical language. Um, <clears throat> but also, of course, we can think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. With what clarity Paul delineates what will essentially happen towards the end of time. This comes first, this comes later, and essential things, but they help, they help. Thessalonians, the letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Peter chapter 3. And then on the basis of what the apostles clearly teach and what the Lord clearly teaches and some of the clearest passages of the Old Testament, then we can go to books such as Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, where there's a lot of symbolism and we can... Uh, understand better, I think, to the extent that we can today, what uh, the Bible really teaches. If, we're not, if we do not give priority to uh, the clear statements of Scripture, whether Old Testament and New Testament, but immediately go to the symbolic, then we create confusion. And, uh, and that there will always be a measure of disagreement among us premillennialist, amillennialist, postmillennialist, uh, which I'm afraid is inevitable. <laughs> we have considered that this morning uh, because there is an intended, a measure of intended obscurity uh, and we saw even why. Why? I think the essential things can be understood uh, rather clearly, but then the details, no. We have too many commentaries on the book of Revelation written through history that identify the Antichrist with so many different figures in church history, beginning with Nero all the way to Hitler, uh, that, to tell us that we just may not have a clue for the moment. <laughs> uh, probably the last generation will understand better. You know, We may be that last generation, I don't know. Uh, and the second thing that we saw, I think, that was important is the connection between what happened in the time of Noah and what will happen in the time of Christ. 
uh, in Matthew 24, we saw that you would remember uh, verse 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came, did not know, did not expect until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So the Lord makes the connection and we saw how there are many different <laughs> uh, terrific judgments of God in the Old Testament. But the reason why the Lord connects His coming, especially with what happened in Noah, is because it, it is as universal as it was back then. In fact, in Second Peter, it's the second letter of Peter, the third chapter, we find the same connection Second Peter chapter 3, the same connection. In chapter 5, speaking of those who somehow make light of the Lord's warning about His coming, He says, they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, uh, and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world was that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept are kept in store by the same word reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Here's the connection. What happened in the time of Noah, where when humanity was submerged, destroyed by the means of water, and then what will happen when the Lord will return? The heaven and the earth are being kept by God for that appointed time when they will be uh, destroyed, purified, by fire. So again the connection. And so I wish we had really time and perhaps we'll have you know several times to be together because I think there's so much matter here when it comes to these connections to lay aside uh, playing with eschatology. <laughs> And really trying to get the important theological, moral teachings of Scripture when it comes to the end of times. I think it gives, as I said, a much sober and I think much more meaningful message. Not only for us to hear and receive as Christians, but even to give. Even to give. Uh, but this will take a little bit of time to develop. Uh, for the moment, we want to keep in mind, theologically, these two connections and try to keep them in mind constantly as we will labor uh, through the contents of Matthew 24, go back to Genesis 6, look at other scriptures, go to the apostolic writings, and perhaps something more meaningful will will also come to you as it came to us as we labor through this in the light of the Word of God. Uh, so what do we see this morning essentially as we work through this? Um, as we read the question of the Apostles in chapter 3, when will these things be? And what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be. Uh, so we saw the distorted interest of the apostles, more interested with the timing and, and the signs than the actual meaningful contents. 
And we saw how we should rather, in the light of what the Lord teaches, focus on the fact that this present humanity will have to end. Will have to end. This present humanity will not be able to continue undeterminately in the future. It will have to end. Why? That's the question. Why is this present humanity, why, why will it be unable to continue to go on like this forever? Why is it good that God will put an end to this? Um, so when we speak like that, then we have to think of actually what happened in the time of Adam and the whole perversion of humanity as it rebelled against God. We already reasoned through this in other times, I remember. Um, and by doing that, humanity completely distorted, perverted the very reason why it was created. And so it lost, um, how should we say, it lost its dignity to survive, to live. Uh, humanity is no longer worthy to exist. Uh, and that's why the time will come when humanity will have an end. Uh, so this, <laughs> the whole question as to why the end will come uh, has to do with the whole rebellion of mankind, the revolt that uh, humanity um, initiated and carried on against God uh, back in the time of, of Adam and on throughout history. Um, and then, uh, how? And when we consider how, we saw this morning basically what will happen. There will be an increase of all the evils that have been manifested through history. The Lord here speaks of the major ones. But we understand that when it, it talks about the degeneration of Christianity in, in chapter 5 and then other passages that we read this morning, uh, when we read of the moral degeneration of society, the increase of wars and even world wars, uh, there's a lot that goes with that. There's a lot of things that are implied on a moral level. Uh, this sort of global destruction will not happen suddenly. There's evidently a decay, a degeneration that progresses in time. And so a lot of things are obviously implied here. Even uh, look at uh, the second part of verse 7. There will be famines, pandemics, and earthquakes in various places. There too, there will be, uh, let us say, a degeneration of the ecosystem, of of you know climate, of the of the, the health of our planet. But it has a completely another explanation than the one they are given these days. There is a theological explanation why there will be a breakdown of everything, of everything not only with what concerns humanity and morality and spirituality, but also what concerns nature, nature. We'll have to look into that and see why that will take place. And it's in a completely different perspective than the one that we are hearing all the time these days. Climate change and global warming and all of that stuff. Uh, and then we saw the increase of persecution, the increase of defections or apostasies within you know, Christianity, and but then we also saw the persistency of the preaching of the gospel throughout history until the end by the faithful ones. So the, the uh, big picture is this, the essential points are this, there will be a progressive breaking down of everything, a progressive degeneration of everything at all levels, whether in the moral realm, 
the spiritual realm, the natural realm, before the Lord returns. There will be a dissolution of things. Uh, it will be a terrible thing, but will, it, it has to happen. It has to happen. And this morning we saw why it has to happen. Uh, at least from one point of view, especially from the point of view of the character of God. Uh, and basically by going back to Genesis chapter 6, then Genesis 18, then Leviticus chapter 26, Matthew 21, Matthew 24, uh, we saw how much of this has to do basically with the character of God. Uh, God is a God of love, merciful, slow to anger, um, of great compassion and mercy. And that's why humanity has been able to persist through the centuries, even in all of its evil ways. Um, and that's why even locally, nationally, uh, and then in, even globally, Genesis 6, Matthew 24, God only intervenes to destroy when humanity reaches the climax of evil, the, the fullness of evil, the fullness of depravity. So if you ask, why are we to bear this? <laughs> why doesn't God put an end to this before? This has to do with the mercy of God and the patience of God towards an evil world. It also it has to do with the coming in of the elect of God. We know there's a, a side to that. Everyone is to be gathered. But God's love is not oriented only towards the elect. It is also oriented towards the world as such. We know that from Scripture. Though we must keep both of these things in mind. Uh, now there is another question as to... Um, how this will be brought about. Why this will happen at a certain time, at a certain point in history, and not earlier, or not after. Um, let us go back to Genesis 6, and we'll always try to connect the dots and the references and try to build a picture. It is so important to have the picture clear. Genesis 6 is and will continue to be, as I said, a point of reference. And let us go back to chapter 6, and verse 3 especially, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive, shall not contend with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, or but flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. So the Lord is warning that his patience is coming to an end. He will not continue to strive and contend with mankind in its evil ways. And yet, yet his mercy is extended for 120 more years, through which he will send a preacher of righteousness, Noah, to warn of the coming judgment. Nobody heard him. Nobody heard him. 120 years. But what... Um, two things here to me are to be underlined this evening. My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. God establishes a time, a, a limit time, which immediately tells us that he is the one that sets the clock. <laughs> he is the one that sets the timetable. Uh, now, I don't want to emphasize the point of time, because we already said we don't need to dwell on that um, a lot. But I'm doing this for a, for a reason here, just to state the fact that God does have a timetable, does have a plan, 
And he is the one who decides when the end comes. When the end comes. This is not for humankind to decide. They say, you know, in 20 years the whole thing could be gone. No, no, it is God who sets the time. Here he says 120 years and so it was. Now, it is important to notice that this time limit is immediately related to the patience of God with mankind and also the restraining work of the Holy Spirit. My spirit shall not strive with men forever, yet I will give him 120 years. So, there is a... Uh, a, a limit in time and there is also this restraining work of the Holy Spirit that uh, work to slow down the progress of mankind towards evil, the progress of degeneration as we may you know, paradoxically call it. Um, now notice that it says my spirit shall not strive with men which theologically is an important statement. <laughs> um, we, we try theologically, especially when we, when we follow the schemes, <laughs> to say, for example, that God works inwardly only with the elect, but He works only outwardly with the non-elect. You know. But that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Uh, here's what God says. His spirit is working, obviously, inwardly. The spirit works inwardly with mankind to restrain mankind. To slow down this march towards evil. And so, this opens up to us the whole concept of God's restraining work from which depends the continuation of man's history. Because if God stops restraining and his patience is exhausted because of man's continuing in evil, then the more he, 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 he lifts up the restraints, the uh, greater and the, the, is the increase of evil and the end approaches and the faster the end approaches. So it really ultimately it all depends on the restraining work that God does to halt, to stop, to slow down the march towards evil pursued by mankind. So the same thing has to be applied to the end of times. When is it that uh, the end will come for this present world? The same thing. The same thing happens. God's Spirit shall not strive with this humanity forever. Not forever. God is restraining inwardly, outwardly, and what we'll do this evening is we will consider some of the restraints. <laughs> but slowly but surely, God lifts them up. He will lift them up. He will lift them up. So that evil will be flooding more and more our humanity until uh, the time of the end will have come. So it all depends on His, his working in, in, this, in this regard. Um, so the question is, what are the restraints? What restraints has God adopted through the centuries, through the millenniums, <laughs> to keep humanity from degenerating? That's the question. Uh, because then, if we understand the restraints, when we see that the restraints are falling apart, <laughs> then that can be a signal, that will be a signal that God is, is not restraining anymore but He's letting everything break apart, break down. Um, 
So I emphasize, first of all, this inward work that God does, even in the hearts of those who will never respond. Still God works in their hearts to restrain them. Um, and here's the first, the major, foremost restraint that God uses to slow down the march towards evil. It is the consciousness of himself. The consciousness of himself. Um, a few examples will we'll do. Um, Genesis chapter 12. You remember this? when Abraham went to Egypt verse 14 so it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful the princess of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house he treated Abram well for her sake he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys male and female servants female donkeys and camels but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore he is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So you see, in the back of the Pharaoh's conscience, there is a consciousness of God. And he relates the consciousness of God with the moral consciousness concerning adultery. Now this man was a pagan, and yet there is a remnant uh, in his mind concerning God. And, and, the, and the fact that God is a moral God and the fact that God does punish evil and those who do evil. And that restrained Pharaoh from just grabbing, no matter what, what he desired, Abram's wife. So this is one example out of many that can be found in Scripture that there is a consciousness of God in the heart and soul of every human being and that the thought of God of the justice of God, even the retributive justice of God, so the punishing justice of God, is the greatest restraint uh, in connection with the moral consciousness of man to keep man from going all the way and becoming totally depraved and using his own life to do evil to the maximum extent that he can. Uh, Exodus chapter 32. Let us go to Israel and see how this applies. You remember what happened. Actually, go with me if you would to Exodus chapter 20 before we go to chapter 22, uh, 32. Now the Lord, as He revealed Himself to Israel at Mount Sinai, He most certainly revealed Himself as a moral God. A moral God. He tells them what they should do morally, what they should not do morally. And as God revealed Himself to them, this is what we read in verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, lightning flashes, the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. This is that sentiment of, of awe, of fear, even of a terror that men can experience, can experience as God draws near and makes his, the reality of his existence known and felt by human beings. They tremble. They literally tremble. This is the God of holiness. 
He demands righteousness. He demands holiness because He is holy. And He hates everything that is not holy, that is not just, that is not right. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that His fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So it's like he's saying God wanted to impress upon you the reality of His holiness, that you may take this with utter seriousness, because God absolutely hates sin and those who practice sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses, by the grace of God, drew near the thick darkness where God was. Oh my. But then, go to Exodus chapter 32. Have you noticed how different is the countenance and the behavior of the people of Israel in the moment they forget the holiness of God and begin to contemplate the divinity in terms of an idol. Have you noticed that? Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. To play. Now, in the original, the word play, it's, uh, it's has another meaning in itself. This is speaking of uh, somewhat of an orge, or orge, uh, orgy. an orgy type of uh, enjoyment. It does have a, an immoral sexual connotation here. Which was one of the reasons why then the judgment came very hard against the people of Israel. Now how can it be that Israel has uh, such a, a different um, sentiment and uh, behavior in these two different occasions. In one occasion, when God is near and makes His presence known and His holiness felt, they tremble and they have they are they they, they understand the moral implication and uh, demands of God. But in the moment they forget God and they begin to worship idols, they completely lose sight of the moral demands and they let themselves go into or fall into all sorts of depravity. See, this is just another indication of what we're talking about. The greatest restraint uh, against evil that God uses is the very thought of God is the very conscience of God in the soul of man. The stronger is the sense of God's reality, of God's existence, of God's holiness, of God's justice, of God's morality, the more restrained human society is. This is a human society right here. But the more God is denied, the more God is forgotten, 
the more God is obliterated from man's view of things, the more human society will degenerate. Paul addresses this very question in Romans chapter 1. We must go there to understand this. Romans chapter 1. What Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, is really amazing because what we delineate here is actually these four phases that help us understand how uh, moral degeneration takes place in human society and culture. Now, the Paul addresses the issue of human degeneration, moral degeneration, societal degeneration is very clear from verse 29 as he speaks of mankind at his own time. He speaks of human beings or humanity as being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So this is a terrible picture. (laughs) This is not good in terms of human condition. What this is talking about is that uh, moral degeneration of man's society, this is a destructive vortex in which society falls into. But the question is, where did it begin? Where did it begin? We must go back to verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. See, Paul is speaking of God's revelation of himself. the truth of His existence, the truth of Him as eternal God and Creator of all things. And Paul says, men suppress this truth, want to suppress this truth. In verse 20, Paul clarifies that this truth of God's existence and reality as Creator and Lord of the universe is clear since the beginning of creation. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because God has revealed Himself and the the revelation of His own existence as Creator and Lord of the universe is clear and evident to all everywhere in the universe. Everybody are without excuse. Nobody has any excuse to deny God. As if to say, I didn't know He existed. Because although they knew God, they didn't know Him spiritually, but they knew Him existentially. They knew that He existed, that He is, that He exists, that He's Creator and Lord of the universe. They knew that, Paul says, but they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful Thankful means that they did not return thanks for all the things they received. (laughs) Because Paul would say that God is the giver of all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Well, mankind was not thankful for anything that God has given throughout the centuries and the eras of of, of history, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed. That takes us back to Exodus. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and the bird and the four-footed beast and the creeping things. You see, that change, that exchange... (laughs) Just like Israel did. They give up the worship of the true God for the 
worship of the idols. Why? Well, it's very clear why. To do what they did exactly the, the very next day. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to pursue evil because human nature, fallen nature, finds pleasure in that which God hates. That's a terrible thing. <laughs> That's the essence of evil. It's not just to do it, but to find pleasure in that which God hates. And because they wanted to pursue that which they, they wanted and they desired, they switched. Because they did not feel that they could play around and play around sexually in the presence of God. But they felt they could do that in the presence of idols. Because idols don't see, whereas God sees. Idols don't hear, but God hears. Idols don't say anything to reprimand you, but God does. And then idols certainly do not judge you, but God does. See, they abandon the reality of who He is to fabricate idols that don't see, don't hear, don't speak, don't judge. They tolerate. <laughs> they tolerate everything. And so they feel free to do whatever they feel in the presence of the idols, which they would cannot feel their freedom to do as long as they are so conscious of the presence of God. That consciousness must be suppressed. That's what Paul says. You see, who suppress the truth, the truth of God, in unrighteousness. As long as that consciousness is strongly felt, there is restraint because you fear God. But when that consciousness of God is suppressed, uh, is repressed, is taken out of man's mind, the man feels free to abandon himself to all sorts of evil. And then society degenerates. And look at, that's why he says he changed the glory of the incorruptible God. <laughs> the incorruptibility of God, the glory of God, is the very thing the man does not want to think about. <laughs> he does not want to think about who God is as creator and Lord of the whole universe. So he tries to do replace God with an idol to remove God out of the picture and satisfy his religious needs through idolatry while at the same time feeling free to live immorally. Uh, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up. There you go. The restraints are taken away. He gave them up to uncleanness. Is this what you want to pursue? Is this why you're abandoning me and replacing me with idols? Well, go ahead. Well, go ahead. Taste some of the consequences of what you want to do, of your lust and uncleanness, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. That's not a good thing. You see, there's an immediate, an immediate social consequence when you abandon God, the consciousness of God, inwardly then you begin to practice that which is evil, and evil begins to break society apart because it, it is externalized. It is this practice against somebody else begin to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged, here we go, the truth of God for the lie. The lie is idolatry. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, for this abandonment, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Here Paul will speak against uh, sexual perversions, especially homosexuality, as a consequence of the abandonment of God. So Paul's thinking is theological, it's not psychological. It's not sociological. <laughs> he rather uh, explains what happened in men's minds or in men's society in terms of the theological truths. This is much deeper than anything else. 
Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do. That's important because that's external, you see. To do those things which are not fitting, to do things that are destructive of themselves and their neighbors. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Do not all of these things uh, have terrible consequences in society? I mean, we're, we're all talking about things that destroy human society. But where do they come from? What's the root? And Paul is, is explaining this very clearly. It all begins with the denial of God, first phase. Second phase, the replacing of God with some idol or many idols. Third phase is the abandonment of God. The, the God gives over mankind to what they're after, their lust, their passions, their evil. And the ultimate consequence is the deterioration of human society, the destruction of human society that Paul is speaking about here. We can tie this back to Genesis 6, as we saw. Uh, we can tie it back to the history of the Jews. We can tie it back, tie it to what will happen, what has happened in human history in different civilizations. But this will happen too, as the end will approach. Uh, so, I think the first thing that happens in a society, and will happen before the Lord returns, there will be a great loss of the sense of God in our civilizations, in our societies, in our culture. Uh, so that atheism will run rampant, Re relativism, the denial of God everywhere as much as possible, the substituting of God with all sorts of different idols, which can be ideological idols, political idols, uh, idols in society, idols in terms of economy and, and pleasure and, and all of that. Um, but that's the first step, the denial of God. I need not ask you whether this is taking place in this country. Uh, and of course, it's long been taking place in my country. Um, so, as you can see, it doesn't start with the violation of God's moral values. If you go back to verse 18, Paul makes this clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul places ungodliness first. Ungodliness is the denial of God. Then unrighteousness, which is the violation, the, the violation of his moral commandments. First you deny God then you violate His commandments because you have no regard for Him. So the first is the cause of the second. The second is the effect of the first. And, and you can read all through history like that. Uh, so, <clears throat> one thing that will happen when God determines that the end must come, He will uh, let society turn into an atheistic society, a society based on the denial of God. Which is something to think about when we think of our own civilization and culture, because atheism has been around for some time, but really never, never as it has spread 
over the last couple of centuries. Let us remember that when atheistic philosophers began to speak out and write, you know, in the 1600s, 1700s, um, they were not well received. There were few. Uh, but then they grew. They grew in the oh, 1700s. They grew. They became more vocal, more vocal. And then, of course, the theory of evolution that tried to explain everything without God. Uh, evolution became, let's say, the criteria uh, through which interpret everything. Uh, not only life, apparently, you know, began on its own, casually, without a divine cause. But then the, the thought of evolution was applied cosmically to the very origin of the universe. It all, it's all evolving. Everything is evolving. We don't know exactly how it all started, you know. They say out of nothing. But evolution is, is the criteria uh, by chance. There's no guiding principle, no divine hand, no divine plan. So cosmic evolution, biological evolution, and then uh, cultural evolution, moral evolution, religious evolution, everything was explained, explained in these terms. But as we will see next time, Christ himself challenges the idea of moral evolution of man, which is a, a very important point to face even as we try to explain to the unbeliever uh, the difference between the world's view of man's future and Christ's view of man's future or humanity's future. Um, now, always in Romans, I come to the second point, which we already uh, elaborated a little bit. But look at uh, chapter 2 of Romans. Uh, here Paul speaks of, of another restraint that Paul, that God, has placed inside of men. Um, speaking of verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law, the Mosaic law, will also perish without the law, the Mosaic law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, Paul's words are a little intricate here, but their meaning is quite clear. Paul is saying that uh, there is a Mosaic law. It is written... Uh, and yet Paul says that's not the only expression of the law of God even those who do not have the written Mosaic law have a law he speaks of it uh, in verse 14 when Gentiles do by nature the things contained in the law these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So Paul says that the human being is a moral creature. And you can recognize that just as he lives, because he does moral things. He responds to moral, um, uh, how, how would you say, imperatives. And so, just by considering that, you can see that Man, even though he may be without the written law, does have a law, a moral law, written inside of him. 
and you feel somehow bound to respond to that, show, by doing so, Gentiles show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience also bearing witness. Now, let us think through this a bit. <laughs> so, what is the work of the law? Well, the work of the law is to inform, it's to give us knowledge of that which is good and that which is evil. So there's one thing here that God has written in our hearts is the knowledge of good and evil according to His moral standards. And then He says, also, so there's something added to this moral consciousness or knowledge the man has written in his hearts is the testimony, the witness of his conscience. <laughs> so, what, what is this other factor here? It is the work of conscience, the witness of conscience, which has, let's say, two sides to it. <laughs> One is the imperative. Conscience uh, commands us tells us, you must do that which is right, you must not do that which is not right. You must do that which is good, you must not do that which is evil. So we hear this uh, moral imperative, we, we feel bound uh, to do that which is good, we feel bound not to do that which is evil. So we, not, we do not only know good and evil, but we have the inward imperative that we must do that which is good and must not do that which is evil. And not only that, in the moment that we think of doing evil, we're skimming, then the voice of conscience begins to speak and says, don't think that. You should not do that. Don't go that way. Don't even try it. You know that it is wrong to do that. Who's speaking? Paul says, the witness of conscience, this whispering voice. And if we suppress the conscience, here's another suppression of man, the suppression of the consciousness of God and the suppression of the moral imperatives as they are witnessed by the voice of our conscience. If we violate our conscience and suppress it and do evil, then the voice continues and it continues to speak to us. I had told you not to do that, but you did it anyway. You are now guilty. You should not have done that. You should have done this. Instead, you did that. And you are guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty. And it continues, continues. It can continue for decades to plague the mind and the heart of man who feels convicted and persecuted by this little voice, he would like to silence, but silence that cannot totally be. And that leads us to understand what Paul is speaking about, this conflict. See, it says, between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Why? Because as the witness of conscience accuses us, we need to justify ourselves to our own selves. We begin to dialogue with our conscience. You know, but I did it because this person did that. You know, my wife did that, or my husband did that, or this person did that. So in retaliation, I did this, and I was right. And why are you continuing to tell me that I'm guilty and that I, I did wrong? And there is an accusing and excusing. There is a battle. There is a conflict. It is a moral conflict in which man continuously lives. And the fact of the matter is that the strength, this, this moral consciousness, the knowledge of good and evil, um, the strength of the moral imperatives that we feel inside, uh, and even the convicting voice of the conscience is as strong as the consciousness of God. If the consciousness of the moral God is strong, 
the voice of our conscience will be strong too. Because the moral conscience uh, is directly related to the moral God. <laughs> but the more men or mankind suppresses the knowledge of God, the consciousness of the existence of God, the more they suppress also uh, the voice of conscience, which becomes weaker and weaker, feeble and feeble, feeble and more feeble, until you can hardly hear it. And so human society or mankind feels free to do whatever, and there's no more conflict inside. Because they eliminated God out of the picture. And so society degenerates. And so when Paul says here in Romans 1 that God withdraws, <laughs> he withdraws, he abandons humankind to pursue the evil that they want to pursue, it means that there is also a disappearing or a lessening of the effect of the work of the human conscience in the human nature, which allows for mankind to pursue evil and more evil without restraint. I'll have to stop here, and Lord Willie will continue next time. But let me just, as we need to stop, let me just say a couple of things. Um, in the light of all this, we understand that when we read in Matthew 24 that the world will degenerate, implied in that description is all of this. The world cannot just fall into a, a self-destructive, warlike society where everybody's against everybody and worldwide wars and uh, without having there been an abandonment of God <laughs> and an abandonment of his moral values, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Uh, which to me makes one thing very clear, is that the work of the church, I will try to be <laughs> careful because these are very um, delicate issues. The work of the church is to preach the gospel, is to preach the gospel, but to preach the gospel broadly speaking also. Um, When we see our society denying God, excluding God, trotting underfoot the, the moral values of God, the church cannot remain silent. Because the more we let that happen, the consciousness of God disappears the impaired, the moral imperatives of man's consciousness disappear, the less effective the gospel will be. The less effective the gospel will be. This is very obvious, isn't it? <laughs> we had just said it. <laughs> the stronger the sense of God is, the more effective the gospel will be. The stronger uh, the sense of the holiness, the righteousness of God's values is, the easier it will be to convince people of sin. If their idea of sin is almost non-existent, <laughs> how are you going to help them see that they need Christ? So we must be careful when we speak of, oh, the church cannot enter into moral issues, you know, and things about... Uh, society and even the you know uh, political realm, there is a point where politics enters into morality. <laughs> you know, they legislate not only technical things; they legislate moral things. And when it comes to spiritual values, moral values, the church has to speak. Has to speak. 
Oh, but it doesn't have to do with Jesus dying and rising from the dead. It may not be immediately, but it does have an effect. <laughs> and the more we just passively accept the moral degeneration of our society, the more ineffective the church evangelism will be. Uh, old Machen believed that. <laughs> he wrote it to his mother back in the days. Uh, he practically said if we let these ideologies of death take over our culture, our preaching of the gospel will become ineffective for this very reason. Back in the old days, they used to call it the work of the law. <laughs> the, the, it's necessary for men to understand the moral nature of God, the moral imperatives of His commandments, the, that relation to His conscience, to his, the calling that He betrayed, to be the image in, made in the image of God. Then the message of the cross will make sense. But unless, if this has disappeared then we may speak of Christ uselessly, like Paul says. Have I spoken to you vainly, the gospel of Christ? So, uh, Francis Schaeffer used to address this very, he called it pre-evangelism. <laughs> you know, the taking off of the roof under which man is pleasantly accommodated himself as he believes his idols. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we have forgotten so many of these things. Uh, the church has almost completely uh, abandoned the theological battle, the spiritual battle, the ideological battle. And I think this is why we are who we are. It's a major, major cause, a major, major reason. We will continue to speak of other restraints another time, Lord willing. But perhaps for now we have enough matter to think about and pray about and do about as the Lord gives grace. Amen.